0: What do advisors fear about compliance with the RIA model? That is today's question on the Transition to RIA question and answer series It is episode number 99. Hi, I'm Brad Wales with Transition to RIA where I help you understand everything there is to know about why and how to transition your practice to the RIA model. If you're not already there, if you head on over to transition to RIA.com, you can find all of the resources I make available from this entire series in video format, podcast format. I have articles, I have white papers, information on how to contact me, all kinds of things to help you better understand the RIA model. Again, transition to RIA.com. Okay. Uh, On today's episode, we're going to be talking about something I often hear early in the conversations that I have with advisors. And so by nature of what I do, of talking to advisors and helping them understand the RA model, helping them understand how it would look for their practice, what a transition into it would look like, I often hear feedback not only on the motivations advisors have for, for considering this possible transition. But also uh, what their current going into the the conversation uh, viewpoint on the RIA model, and is, and at times that comes with misconceptions. Now that's not the advisor's fault because if you've as an advisor, if you've never been in the RIA model, why would you necessarily know how certain things work? So there often be can be misconceptions just just having never gone down that path before. Uh, there's also a fair number of industry voices out there that I say are agenda-driven to try to uh, speak ill of the RIA model because they don't want advisors going down that path. So the classic example is the branch manager of a wirehouse firm. If you're at a wirehouse, your branch manager, if you were to leave that branch and go in any other direction, but certainly the RIA model is an example, that branch manager has a personal economic incentive to have you not leave their branch. How they are compensated is typically, uh, a good chunk of that is based on the production of the branch, they don't want you to leave. So they have an agenda to try to scare you out of going uh, down other pathways. And that person themselves, by the way, when it comes to the RA model, likely has not been in the RA model, so doesn't fully understand it themselves either. And so they could be past uh, pass log misconceptions just inadvertently on top of maybe having an agenda and so you you need to be careful who the voices are that you're listening to. But regardless, it has created some misconceptions in the marketplace. I often hear them early in the conversation. Uh, and so this topic came up recently when I was talking to uh, my friend Rich Chen over at Bright Star Law Group, uh, and we were talking about these misconceptions. I ended up actually writing a, a guest post for his website on some of the top compliance misconceptions that are out there. And so I wanted to uh turn it into an episode here as well and talk about some of the same points i i noted in that post i'll link to it in the show notes if you want to take a look at it directly um but these are things that i hear and so i want to go over five examples of of feedback that i hear of of things essentially advisors fear about doing compliance as their own ria now let me start by saying and for those of you that have watched or listened to a number of my episodes you also have the option uh, when transitioning into the R model to join an existing RIA solution as opposed to perhaps start in your own firm. And if you join an existing RA solution, part of what you are outsourcing to that firm is that compliance responsibility. They handle it for you, so to the degree you don't really want to have anything to do with compliance or the regulatory aspects of running an RA. You can fully get that off your plate. There are some great solutions that that is part of their value proposition. To say, hey, we will do the compliance for you. I've done all kinds of episodes on why you might want to join an RIA versus start in your own. So check those out. Um, but on this episode, we're going to be talking about okay, if the circumstances are as such and we talk it through and, and you think going down the path of your own RIA makes sense, what are some of the misconceptions that I hear about that going in? So. Uh, I have five of them I just want to go over here. And today, not an exhaustive list, uh, but I think it'll give you some some good context of the, the types of things I hear and to try to set that record straight uh, here in the marketplace. Uh, so number one, I often hear people say, yeah, but I don't want to have to pay for compliance. So what they were, are referring to is if you have your own RIA, there's no regulatory requirement that you do this but it is very standard process to manage the compliance or regulatory responsibility of your own RA that you hire a third party compliance consultant firm to help you manage that responsibility. I've done all kinds of episodes on on the kinds of these providers in the marketplace, uh, how they differ, those sorts of things. Uh, But but you do hire those folks and likewise you pay those folks. And so some people say, well, I don't wanna have to pay to do compliance. Well, guess what? You are paying for compliance currently. I don't care what kind of affiliation model you're in. Uh, for example, if you're at a large broker-dealer and you're getting the traditional, quote-unquote, payout, uh, well, the part that the firm retains, so if you get a payout of 45% and the firm is retaining 55%, guess what? Part of that 55% is to pay for compliance. They have to cover the expenses of that compliance team, That the, the, the regulatory uh, aspects of running the firm And so even though you don't get an itemized bill from them that shows oh hey of that that retention which against the inverse of the, the payout they give you they don't give you some itemized bill to say oh this this part here went to compliance but make no mistake you are paying for compliance regardless of what sort of affiliation model you're in now one of the benefits of being in the ria model is where you pay it directly again to a compliance consultant firm you you can see exactly it is an itemized bill because you say, okay, of my, my whole P&L, this is the amount of money I'm paying for that compliance support. So with that transparency, you know, you can determine exactly, hey, am I getting good value from my compliance provider, my compliance support provider for the amount of money I am paying them? Try calling up your broker-dealer compliance department and asking them, hey, could you tell me how much of my payout is going to pay you guys because I wanna make sure that the sport you are or aren't giving me is worth what I'm having to pay for that. Obviously they they can't or won't do that. Uh, and, and that that is one of the benefits though of paying for it directly is you can see exactly what you're paying for. But the main takeaway is you're paying for compliance regardless. You just have to mentally get over the fact that if you're gonna see it on an itemized bill as opposed to just blurred into your bundled payout. So number two, Uh, I don't want to be responsible for doing compliance myself. Uh, And and as I said at the top, if that's a concern for you, there are some wonderful solutions in the RA model uh, that you can join and they will do the compliance for you. So just as an initial takeaway, that should never be a misconception in the marketplace. Oh, I I don't want to be responsible for compliance. Great, there's wonderful solutions where you can outsource that. But to the degree uh, you're going to have your own RA, I want you to kind of think about the benefits of managing your own compliance. And yes, it is an additional responsibility for most of you that are not in the RA model currently. For better or worse, you're not managing compliance. If you go in the RA model and have your own RA, that will be a new responsibility you will have. And again, noted there's ways you you manage that, there's ways you solve for that, use third-party compliance consultant firms to help you with that. But think about what that does. That When that changes, when you are responsible for the compliance. So yes, it comes with additional responsibility, but but there's also a different dynamic between now you and how you are managing your compliance. And so think of it from the broker-dealer. If you're a broker-dealer now, think of the, the perspective they have. If you were to call up those compliance folks, and there's some wonderful folks out there, but uh, if you were to call up the compliance team behind the scenes, would they think of you as the advisor as the customer of that compliance department firm? Do do they view you, okay, hey, if we are not responsive to this advisor, that's the customer that could potentially take their business elsewhere. Hey, if we're not willing to think through possibly creative solutions of how we can make something work for a particular client, do they fear, oh, wow, that's the customer, that customer could take their business elsewhere? That's not how they think. Early in my career, I worked for a brief time in a compliance department at a large broker dealer firm. Trust me, that's not how the compliance teams uh, kind of uh, th- think about the advisors. Now they should, now I-, I did work for a guy and he was very good and he he would remind us. Now, unfortunately it was not kind of adopted by by all the people actually in the compliance team, but he would say, don't forget who signs our paycheck implying it's the advisor. Meaning there's compliance people, hey, we wouldn't have jobs if it wasn't for the advisors. So we need to work, work cooperatively with them through this and and to his credit, he would say that, but I but see it firsthand, the the kind of uh, rank and file oftentimes just kind of gets caught up in, oh hey, we're we're out trying to catch rule breakers and let's go after this person. They don't think of you as the customer. Now, consider how that is different in the RIA model. Again, if you have your own RIA, you're hiring a compliance consultant firm. So what does that mean? You are hiring them. That makes you the customer. So for most of you, that will be the first time in your career that that you are the customer of compliance, not the other way around. And so that gives you more control. You, you, You are the one paying for the service. So if that compliance consultant firm is not being responsive to you or your team when you reach out and you need help with something, or you have a unique situation and you're trying to think through a creative way to make that work within the regulations and how how we could make this work and what we what we might have to adjust and if they're not willing to kind of think that through with you and try to help you find a solution in this cooperative manner well guess what you are the customer you can fire the compliance consultant firm and go hire another firm that is more responsive to your needs that will be more uh, cooperative in trying to find creative solutions. And so you have the control as the customer to, to control that relationship. You don't have that when you're at the, just some giant broker dealer firm. You should essentially have that. They should have that mindset, but that's not how it is. So when you say, hey, I, I don't wanna manage compliance myself, Again number 1 you can always join an RA solution fully take that off your plate but don't necessarily see it as as much of a negative as you might if you're thinking that now yes it is that additional responsibility I noted but guess what there's 15,000 plus RASC RA's out there that are that are already managing this this there's a way to do it you got have the right resources but if you're willing to take on that responsibility there is actually benefits of being in charge of compliance yourself because you get a better compliance partner in that process. So big difference between that broker-dealer world and the RIA world. Uh, The third misconception I often hear is, oh, the SEC will fine me for compliance deficiencies. And so this is a scare tactic that, oh gosh, if you go start your own RIA, the SEC is come, gonna come and examine you and they're gonna give you some giant fine that's gonna put you out of business, right? I mean, that's the most extreme example, but but there are those voices out there trying to put that scare tactic into advisors to to to, 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 to that put that fear so they get scared away if not making that move. Uh, and, and for the most part, you don't need to worry about that. The, the reality is, if you have your own RIA, you are responsible for the compliance, you will be examined by the regulators, uh, so if you're the, generally the 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 over unders, if you're 100 million or less, you'll be state registered. Above that, you'll be SEC registered. There's a few nuances where that that other variables could come into play, but for the most part, that's how it plays out. So let's say you're above 100 million, uh, the SEC will examine you. It's typically every couple years. It's not an annual exercise, and they will come in. They will spend time going through you know all of your policies and procedures and trying to understand how you're running the practice. Uh, but again, to help you through this process, that's why you're hiring and paying for that compliance consultant firms, because you know this will come along. The compliance consultant firm knows this will come along every couple of years. They help you get through this. Uh, and the reality is the SEC is not, regardless of criticism at times, the, the, the regulators are not, for, for, the, uh, for the most part, there might be some bad apples on the team, but for the most part, They are out there to to protect the investing public. They are not out there to play gotcha games and to screw over advisors or find advisors or anything like that. They are out there to protect the investing public by finding the bad apples that are industry uh, and any industry of size, and our industry certainly falls in that bucket, will unfortunately have some bad apples. It's the regulator's job to find those bad apples and remediate the situation often which can include uh, uh, fines. That's why you see the big fines happening. But if you as an RIA are running a compliance shop, you are putting the resources into uh, best managing that responsibility. Again, you're, you're hiring and paying a reputable compliance consultant firm to help you. And if your guide and light is to do what's best for clients, you generally do not have anything to fear from the regulators, let alone some big fine. Now, yes, when they come in every couple of years and they're gonna spend some time there, they will generally find the quote unquote deficiencies in your program, but that could be as simple as perhaps a, a, a box on the ADV that that should have been checked and it wasn't, and everyone can agree, okay, that wasn't done, uh, advert- that was inadvertently uh, checked or not checked. Uh, there was no intent to harm the client. So let's, hey, let's get that corrected. Yes, we will check that next time we come in to make sure you corrected it, but we realize you weren't out trying to do anything to harm clients and, and let's just get it fixed. So it, it's not like the regulars come in and just start handing out fines. That's right. Now, if you are one of those bad apples and you are doing things to harm clients, you're on your own at that point. There's no compliance consultant firm that can bail you out of that if you are if you are on the wrong side of the tracks. But for those of you that are running a compliant shop, putting the resources, you do not need to fear the regulators. You do not need to fear that they will come in and assess some big fine on you. Uh, again, typically all they're going to find if you're running it, running a good show is smaller things. They just want to see it get rectified. Okay, so number four, and I heard this on a podcast just the other day. Uh, it was actually an industry recruiter that said it, and he was talking about, hey, why advisors might start their own RA or join an RA uh, A the many topics I talk about. And he, he noted, oh, if you keep in mind, if you were to start your own RA, you're going to have to go and hire uh, a chief compliance officer and pay him $200,000 or more. And that that was basically kind of a scare tactic to be suggesting you you don't want to be going down that path. Now, I always say you you need to question anyone's motives of why they're answering things in a certain way. The, my, my, my guess as to why this recruiter was expressing that as such either one they're just not familiar with with how it actually works or two they it is much easier for them as a recruiting firm to simply steer you into joining an ria that they have recruiting relationships with versus helping you maybe start your own ria Uh, again there's pros and cons that's not to say that joining an RIA is better or worse than starting your own it matters what's uh, best for you based on your specific circumstances I help advisors down both paths equally uh, again because I couldn't tell you know in the the very first part of a conversation which path an advisor would go down. So it's a matter of figuring that out. But but you can tell this was kind of an agenda driven answer because it's it's easier for them, maybe perhaps more lucrative for them to steer an advisor down the path of joining an RIA. So they so they throw out this oh well, you're going to have to hire a chief compliance officer that's going to cost you over two hundred thousand dollars and and you don't want to do that. That's very expensive. And and the reality is. For most advisors and teams, that's not going to be needed. Now, yes, if you get large enough, you might need or might need or want some your know, very specific in-house expertise resources. Usually, still coupled with that outside compliance consultant firm, and 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 perhaps at some point when you get large enough, you want you want that. But typically, for most of you, you are not going to need to hire a standalone expert compliance person as the CCO that costs over $200,000 a year. Now, every RIA requires there to be a designated chief compliance officer, CCO. So you will have to have that. Now, there's ways to, and I've done episodes on this, potentially even outsource that function, the outsource CCO function. So you can check out that episode if you want. Uh, but, But at the end of the day, unless you outsource it or unless you join an existing RIA, someone on the team has to be named the CCO. Again, that person to manage that responsibility, that's why you're hiring that third-party compliance consultant firm. But that person doesn't necessarily have to be a $200,000 plus experienced compliant person. Oftentimes it's maybe an operations person that's also now kind of wearing the hat of compliance. Oftentimes it could be a main principal or founder that that is doing that and then has members on the team kind of supporting them with the the day-to-day tasks. But don't think, oh, if I start my RIA, I have to go hire this very expensive CCO. That's absolutely incorrect information. Again, there could be certain circumstances where you grow large enough, and that's the case. But for the majority of advisors and teams considering the model, that's not something you need right from the jump. I'm happy to help you understand if you're in that camp of being large enough where it might make sense. But to make some broad statement, like I heard again on this podcast, that, oh, everyone uh, everyone that starts an RIA is going to need to do those absolutely incorrect, absolutely misconceptions. Uh, and then the final one uh, of the misconception, again, these are not uh, an all-inclusive list of things that I hear, uh, but is, hey, if I start my own RIA, I will be at a disadvantage to so the larger firms, if the SEC comes in and changes any rules down the line, so once I make that leap, now I'm at the mercy of the SEC. I know they could screw me over because they change some rule and I get crushed, right? That's, that's that agenda-driven fear that the large firms are often putting out there. So we'll pick on wirehouses in this case. Keep in mind, while we call wirehouses broker dealers, they are duly registered. They are broker dealers and RIA's. So uh you as the advisor your t- most advisors are typically wearing two hats if you're at a wirehouse, you're a registered rep meaning you're under the broker dealer that's where you open your commission accounts and you are an investment advisor representative under the firm's ria side of the house that's where you open your fee based accounts. so your firm is essentially a giant ria we just happen to call them generalized we call them broker dealers but they are broker dealer and ria and so the the implication that is being made by the people that that kind of put, try to put this fear out there is uh, we as a large ra we will be able to adopt or absorb these potential changes from the sec you your standalone ria advisor you will get crushed by any changes that come along and there's a couple of things i want you to to think about that for first if a new rule comes along and it's a black and white rule that says you can or can't do X. Well, guess what? Every every SC well, the the states have slightly different rules. So we're we'll just kind of put state registered RIAs to the side, but the same overall kind of macro theme still applies. So if the SEC changes the rule and it's a black or white rule, it says you can do X or you can't do X. Well, guess what? Every RIA of any size has to play by the same rules. So the big firm and the small firm, if it's now you can't do it, you can't do it. Or you can do it, you can't do it. So that's very black or white not one firm's not an advantage or disadvantage of the other now where there often can be a difference is a lot of rules that come along there's often uh, interpretation needed to say hey how does that new rule apply specifically to my ria of whatever size i might be and how am i going to implement policies and procedures to follow that rule and so it can be much more of a gray area now That could be something as simple as, hey, there's a new rule that says advisors can or can't do X, and we need to have some sort of way to document that we are monitoring that advisors are doing or not doing X, whatever that might be. And that's where you really start to see that variability because if you think about it, hey, a giant firm with say 10,000 plus advisors has to implement or interpret this new rule and then implement policies and procedures to potentially corral 5,000, 10,000 plus advisors, and that's where you often hear the the, the the phrase manage into the lowest common denominator when it comes to compliance. If you have these 10,000 advisors, well, you have some bad apples in there. Again, you get big enough group together, you have some bad apples. So they have to put guardrails in place, which are generally much tighter than the actual regulation itself, to try to identify and prevent those bad apples from doing things they shouldn't be. Now compare that to if you have your own RA, where perhaps you have a dozen or maybe even fewer advisors on the team, maybe it's you and one other person even perhaps uh, producing advisors. Now, when you say, hey, there's this new rule, we have to implement something, we have to be able to demonstrate that, hey, me and the one or two or three or five other advisors on the team are following that rule, well, who's gonna have way more flexibility in how that can be implemented? That the, the RA with five advisors that they have to craft that new policy and procedure around, or the one with 10,000 plus advisors. So the flexibility is significantly better in that RIA space than it is in that that giant, or the the kind of standalone RIA space than that giant RIA space. Uh, So it's something to think about because the main thing is we don't know what rules will change in the future, five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years from now, no one knows what new rules will come along. And so what I would just suggest to you is knowing new rules will come along, it is inevitable, would you rather be in that more flexible environment of, hey, we, we, we can manage and implement uh, and, and how we interpret this into our own practice based on half a dozen advisors? Or do you want to be along for the ride of what that looks like for 5,000, 10,000 advisors and you're mixed in for better or worse with that lowest common de- lowest common denominator approach to compliance? So just an example, if someone says, oh, you'll be at a disadvantage, for rule changes. No, I'd say you are at an advantage because you will be much more flexible to adapt to whatever those changes come and yes, change will come, than you would be if you're just mixed in that big pot at that giant firm. So this is, again, not an exhaustive list, but these are the kinds of things I hear early on in conversations, again, misconceptions about compliance, there's misconceptions about the economics of the model, misconceptions about the, just the various responsibilities of the model. And so what I encourage advisors to do is say, hey, When you hear these different voices, make sure you are talking to a good source, someone that knows exactly how this works, obviously not to give you some sales pitch, but this is all I do is help advisors understand exactly how the RIA model works, how each of these types of things would apply to your specific practice, and make sure you're getting good information. So before you discount the idea of, well, I don't even need or want to consider the RIA model because of X, Ask yourself, how confident am I that X is actually accurate? Who has told me that? What has their experience been to be able to explain that? Uh, and, and have I validated that? Have I checked to see is, is that actually exactly how that would work? Uh, so with that, like I said at the top, my name is Brad Wales with Transition to RIA. This is the kind of conversation I have all day long with advisors helping them understand what's that RA model look like? How does it work? How would it look for your specific practice? What are the different pathways into the model? How does the actual transition process work? Uh, It's a whole kind of orchestrated process to get from point A to point B. Uh, that's that's what I do for advisors. Happy to begin that conversation with you. It all begins with the conversation. A lot of education usually on the front end. And then we kind of figure out what pathways might make sense. By the way, for some of you, the RA model won't make sense. And we try to identify that on the front end and say, hey, for these reasons, it's actually not a good fit. But for the majority of advisors, it is a good fit. So let's look at how that would look, What might what, what might work best for your practice. And again, how that transition process typically plays out. Uh, but as a starting point, uh, head on over to transition2ria.com. To TransitionToRIA.com. Uh, again, I have all kinds of resources to help you better understand the model. This entire series is available in video format, podcast format. I have articles, I have white papers. And at the top of every page is a contact link you click on that, you can instantly and easily schedule time to have a one-on-one conversation with me. Whether you want to talk about today's topic or anything else RIA related, I'm happy to have that conversation with you. Again, transition to RIA.com. And with that, I hope you found value in today's episode and I'll see you on the next one.